pray that you would give us ears to hear today and eyes to see, hearts with fertile soil, minds that can comprehend, feet that want to be, that want to be obedient, Father. And how about this? May we grab the sword today as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation chapter 19. What we are going to see over the next two chapters is the return of Jesus, and he's going to establish his earthly kingdom. You realize in the beginning of time, when God created the earth, the heavens and the earth, and he breathed life into the dirt of the earth, and he created the Garden of Eden, what did he create the Garden of Eden to do? To dwell and to have a relationship with his people. So his desire was to have a relationship with his people where? Here on earth. So this idea of heaven, we, we were created to be in this perfect place, this good place with Jesus forever, with God forever. So the, I, I'll carefully say this. The idea of heaven, we were not created to go to this place in the sky. When God created in the beginning of time, we are created to wander the earth with him. Amen? And what we see through the book of Revelation and, and what we learned earlier in the book of Revelation is this, is when man sinned, they gave the right of the authority of the earth, the title deed of the authority of the earth over to Satan. So now Satan has this title deed and Satan is the prince of the earth, the prince of the air. He oversees and has dominion here on earth so what we see through the book of Revelation is Jesus coming to redeem all. See, Jesus has already redeemed us from sin and death, amen? That was done on the cross. Now he's coming to redeem the earth, the place by which he wants to commune with his people. So over the next two chapters, we're going to see Jesus come and return to finish that work. This chapters, in my opinion, is one of the most exciting in the Bible. The bride of Christ, so you and I, believers, are the guest of honor at the marriage of the Lamb in heaven. Jesus will return with his triumphal uh, second coming. And this chapter will involve Old Testament believers, New Testament believers, tribulation believers, Singing together, Alleluia. Alleluia. And I was sharing with someone recently that I remember being at the RCA Dome, and I've shared this with you guys before. When I was maybe eighth grade, right, at the RCA Dome, and you guys know what the RCA Dome is. The RCA Dome was uh, the Indianapolis Colts Stadium back in the day, downtown Indianapolis. It would hold, I don't know, 65 to 70,000 people. And we went to this event called Acquire the Fire. And when we went to Acquire the Fire, it just happened to be that Mercy Me was there. And they were going to debut a song called I Can Only Imagine. So we were at Acquire the Fire with 65,000 young people. And um, the people who were taking babysitting and going crazy. Everyone got saved there. The kids got saved because they met Jesus, and the adult chaperones got saved too because they wanted to kill everyone. So, like, there was a lot going on. So we were there, and I just remember hearing 65,000 young people singing, I can only imagine. And, you know, when the worship team quits playing the guitar sometimes, right? And we hear 120 people singing. You're like, man, that sounds really good. You don't sound good. But the collection of us together, we sound really good. And then the sense of awe comes over you of, 
This is really neat just to hear 120 people singing. Well, what about 65,000 people? 65,000 people singing and worshiping and bringing honor to God. The awe that struck me, I couldn't believe it. But what we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 19 will be Old Testament believers, New Testament believers, and tribulation believers all coming together to sing Alleluia. Alleluia. We're going to be singing Holy, Holy, Holy is He. Talk about chills. Talk about being in awe. That's going to be amazing, amen? This event, if you are a believer, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be a part of this. This is something that you and I will be a part of. So you probably want to listen in to know your part, right? Because in the scripture, it's going to tell you if you're a soprano, if you're, uh, what are some other ones? Alto, baritone, bass. Um, I would just be the extra. Watermelon, watermelon, watermelon. You guys ever heard that? If you say watermelon, then every song, it'll look like you're singing it. I see you guys singing watermelon out there. The scripture's not gonna tell us what position we will be singing or where we will be standing. But we will be a part of this. And the climax for the book of Revelation is when Jesus returns. It's all gonna be finished. And as we look at today's scripture, I believe that there's three parts that I just want to point out. The next time we do Revelation in 2025, um, that'll be our January 1st series of 2025, the book of Revelation. Um, when we look at it from a different perspective, wouldn't that be interesting if this was just a Revelation church? <laughs> All we ever did, every small group, all we ever talked about was the book of Revelation and Jesus. I'm sure there's churches like that, but um, three parts today. If we ever preached it a different way, I'm sure we could look at it differently. But um, we're going to start today with what we see in Scripture is a celebration in heaven. Now, when you think about a celebration, as I've already shared, you have the RCA dome where we were celebrating how we could only imagine and you think of when Scott encouraged us to yell, to be excited, to be undignified. I recognized even within myself, I yelled. I believe it's important. But then there's those times that I'm watching the Buckeyes on the edge of my seat. And JT Barrett gets a spot that was really a favorable spot. And I yell, and I'm like, yes, which was much louder, much louder than um, what I yelled today. Or when Caleb Romero scores and beats Minster, and the refs tell him, you didn't cross the line, and then you yell, and you're like, I'm yelling even louder than that. But the RCA dome was 65,000 young people. Now imagine being at the horseshoe. And all of us singing, um, I can only imagine. Now, the horseshoe, rough, I mean, you can't say double, but the horseshoe could fit maybe packed in there. Well, with the field, with the field covered in people, you could probably fit 107 to 110,000 people in the horseshoe. Now, on a typical Saturday, the Buckeyes will have 105,000 people there, crazy, going nuts, face painted, right, screaming for the Buckeyes. And what a scene that is, right? Any of you guys ever been to a Buckeye game? Participating, right? And then you get the O-H-I-O. And you just hear the roar of the crowd. 
and then the band comes out at halftime, you're like, I don't even like bands, but yeah. I'm here for football, not the band. And then, and then for the um, Script Ohio, you know, they come out, and then the dude starts doing his kicking. And then, well, dude or dudette, whatever it is, right? Whoever it is that day. And then they dot the I, and the crowd goes, yeah. They've even measured on the Richter scale the um, commotion in the shaking of the earth that 105,000 people might make. It's been measured on the Richter scale before. That roar of people screaming for other people, which has become an idol in their life. And they're screaming so loud for sports, but won't scream for their God. Or what about this? Take football out, right? What about when World War II was over? The way that we celebrated. The way that every home, and, and I hear that people went out in the streets and they ran in the streets and they had block parties and there was just this excitement across the nation, the celebration of it is finished. the Buckeyes winning a national championship or Buckeyes beating Michigan or World War II being over or Hitler being defeated and his reign being finished. All of those celebrations will pale in comparison to the celebration that the bride of Christ will be participating in in this moment and for the rest of eternity. That's what we're going to see happen right here. Revelation chapter 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what sounded like a roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has commended, condemned, commended. He has commended the great prostitute. That's where you're supposed to be like, blasphemy. <laughs> he has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again, they shouted, hallelujah, the smoke from her go, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. They cried it out. Any of you guys ever had that gut-wrenching worship? where you're just crying it out. That's what's going on here. See, Babylon the Great has now been destroyed in chapter 19. Its spirit that opposed all things that are godly, that spirit, that city is now gone. An evil that was far worse than Hitler And this evil that was um, the spirit that provoked other people to do evil is now gone forever. And heaven will shout for joy. Amen? Let's continue, verse 5. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like uh, loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. 
fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. So all of heaven, all of God's people will come together, something we will be a part of, and they will celebrate the marriage that is about to happen. And the marriage is who? God, Jesus, and the bride. A celebration. The lamb and his bride, Jesus and his people. And this is the marriage feast, and the saints will be dressed in fine linen made of their righteous acts. Verse 9. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the tr uh, true words of God. At this, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant with you. For your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus worship God. For it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. So the angel tells John to write these things down. Yet John decided he was going to fall down and worship the angel. Even the angels are so different than we are that, you know, often when people see angels in Scripture, they fall in fear or they fall in worship. And the angels are always like, no, not me, right? The angel said he is a fellow servant and that John needs to worship God. Remember, created things are not to be worshipped. Created things are not to be worshipped. What are we? Created things. Are we to be worshipped? No. What are angels? Created things. Are they to be worshipped? No. Was God created? No. Was Jesus created? No. Was the Holy Spirit created? No. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Father have always been and, were, and will always be, and we have no clue how it came about. But here's what we know. They weren't created. So that helps us understand how we are supposed to understand what we worship. Our house, what was that? Created. Our clothes, what were they? Created. Humans, created. Ohio State, created. Work, created. There's one thing that we are to worship, and that one thing was never created. It's always been, amen? So I think that's, that should help us understand that created things are not to be worshipped. So this angel finished with the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, in the context of Revelation, I believe what's being said is prophecy should lead our hearts and our minds towards Jesus. Prophecy is to reveal the heart of God in all situations. So I believe that's what's going on. Now, other people who have also taught this scripture, um, I and that's why I say, if we do round two of Revelation, I think there's also more that we would present, right? But they say that, um, let's see this. Others have taught that as we share our testimony of Jesus, it creates anticipation of his goodness in our lives. Or, sorry, as we share the testimony of Jesus, it essentially creates an anticipation of his goodness in other people's lives. So as I share about how faithful he's been in my life, it will also create anticipation and expectation in your life about his goodness in your life. Anyone ever experienced that? That if someone shares a testimony of Jesus, you get excited, you get hopeful. So other, other teachers have taught that as well. Um, I believe it. We're not heading there. Either way, all of heaven has broken out in worship right here. They're worshiping God as all the evil in the earth is being defeated. That's what we see going on. Yet for this to be finalized, Jesus must return. 
So Jesus returns. Verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is that, uh, sorry, just losing spot. And his name is of the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So now in this section of Scripture, we will see how Jesus is true and the enemy is counterfeit. I hope through the book of Revelation, what we have seen is there is Jesus and then there's just every other way. There's there's two kingdoms. There's not multiple ways to heaven. That's been clear to us. But there's just two kingdoms. That's it. There's Jesus' kingdom, and then there's just the other kingdoms. And those other kingdoms all come together in one group. So Jesus is truth. Everything else is counterfeit. But Jesus will bring peace, healing, and will rescue his people. Yet the enemy in Revelation and all throughout Scripture has brought war, destruction, Murder, deceit, deception, and lies. Jesus redeems all things. The enemy makes things messy. So like as we continue in this um, chapter, there's much symbolism that's going on. There's the white horse, eyes like blazing fire. Jesus had a tattoo on his thigh. Any of you guys have that replication tattoo because you love Jesus so much that you got that tattoo on your thigh? None of you? Sword coming out of his mouth, a bloody robe, and he treads a wine press. There's even more symbolism, but Revelation is highly symbolic. But if you remember Jesus' first coming, when he first came, When do we typically celebrate Jesus' first coming? At Christmas. We celebrate the birth of Jesus. So if you start thinking of when Jesus first came, it's much different than the second time that Jesus is coming. So when Jesus first came, he came intentionally in obscurity. He didn't draw attention to himself. He just did it highly obscurely. Isaiah 53, verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should, that, um, we should desire him. Sounds like Jesus was not good looking. He probably didn't have as strong as a beard as we make it look. His hair was not as plush as people make it. There was nothing attractive about Jesus. Nothing in his physical appearance would draw us to him. This is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who's revealing himself to mankind, and he could choose to look like anything. He could have made um, Fabio just look like nothing. Or um, why can't I think of the soccer player right now? Huh? What, David Beckham's one of them? What's the other one now? Ronaldo, thank you. Cristiano Ronaldo, women. Anyone? 
anyone, how about this? We're going to test the spirituality of the church. Who else? I named three people. Who else? Just go ahead. Shout them out, women. George Clooney. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Messy. Um, Tom Cruise. I've gone too far. I feel disgusting even talking about it. Jesus came in obscurity. Where was he born? In a manger. So he, he chose his appearance. God chose his appearance, right? He could have looked however he wanted. He could have been chiseled. He could have had big muscles. He could have had eyes. I mean, he could have had everything, but yet he chose to not be that way. So when he, he first came, he came in obscurity. Yet when he returns, guess what? He will come in obvious glory. That's what we see happening here in Revelation chapter 19. Jesus will come in obvious glory. Jesus will come with a white horse, dressed in splendor. The sky will split, and he will be dressed in white. When he returns, the whole world's going to know, and we're going to see that here in a minute. But he comes in splendor when he returns. He was lowly and coming as a servant when he first came. Now he's coming as a king with all authority. Amen? When Jesus first came, he came in isolation. Where was he born? A manger. Not only was he born in a manger, but people often left him and didn't want to follow him. We think, do, do we think that we would have been a devoted follower of him? Like even the disciples had questions. But he came in isolation. He had multitudes follow him for a moment. And then what ended up happening after a while? The multitudes quit following him. And then he had just followers. What did the, just the followers do? Just the followers, they quit following him. They quit supporting him. And then he had his disciples. What did his disciples do? They betrayed him. They denied him. Even his brother didn't think that he was who he said he was. So when Jesus came, guess what? Jesus was isolated. Yet when he returns, he will come with armies of heaven following him as he wears his white linen. Jesus came in isolation and no one wanted anything to do with him. Very few. But when he returns, he's coming with a crowd. Amen. When Jesus first came, People mocked him and put a crown of thorns on his head. You guys are familiar with it. Mark chapter 15, verse 17. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail the king of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. So when he first came, people mocked him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. You guys are familiar with the story. He was beaten and abused, made fun of. Any of you guys ever been spit on on the playground? Anyone ever been spit on? Any of you guys ever spit on anyone? You guys remember when your parents taught you, or maybe even the church taught you, that the unforgivable sin was spitting on someone? Anyone ever taught that growing up? I kind of believe that, so I never spit on anyone. I'm like, well, I guess I'll go to hell if I spit on someone. Um, so I'm, 
since works gets us there, I never spit on anyone. I'm going to make it. We don't believe in works here. He was mocked. And the loneliness that he could have felt from a physical human standpoint. But what's unique is he even asked God on the cross, why have you forsaken me? He understood why we would. But he asked his father, why have you forsaken me? There was a loneliness because he was mocked, he was beaten, he was abused. He was certainly misunderstood. He never sought to defend himself. But when he returns, he is unequivocally the one true king. It'll be clear to all. I don't care what your belief is. It will be clear to you. Revelation 19, 12 will say, on his head are many crowns. Revelation 19, 15 comes with a sharp sword and will strike down the nations. Revelation 19, 16, king of kings and lord of lords. When he returns, it will be clear that he is king. When Jesus first came, people thought that he was defeated by his enemies. He was condemned, he was scourged, he was beaten, he was crucified. Even his own friends left him. So what did they think? He was defeated. Yet when he returns, it will be clear he wasn't defeated. And he will take out his enemies. Revelation 19, 13. His robe is dipped in blood. Now, when we first read this, our first idea goes to, with his robe being dipped in blood... That's just showing Jesus in physical form and his blood that was spilled for our sins. And, and maybe that's what it is, right? It could be that. Um, I think it can make sense. But a lot of the study that I did uh, would suggest that this is actually symbolic of the blood of his enemies. The blood of those who have been against him and his people. So he has the blood of his enemies on him. He will strike them down with his sword. He will rule them with his scepter, according to Revelation. He will tread the winepress, which is a symbol of God's wrath. So when he's dressed in blood here, it appears that Revelation 19 is pointing to the blood of his enemies. Now, we should now be noticing a couple diff uh, differences in the first and second coming, right? When Jesus first came, it looks a whole lot different than his second coming. But why are they so different? See, in the first coming, Jesus came as a lamb and a savior who will lay down his life for all. In his second coming, he's coming as a king and lion who will judge and rule. He will judge and rule. 6,000 years, right? He's just been so patient with all of us. He desires that not one would perish. But what he's going to say one day when he returns, I'm coming as a lion and I'm coming as a king. And the time's up. So you better get right. Now, as we've learned through Revelation, it's highly symbolic. But there are other passages that are not in Revelation that are not symbolic and they speak clearly to Jesus' second coming. We've touched on many of those throughout the book of Revelation and our study. But the one we'll bring up again today is probably the most popular, which is Matthew 24. Side note, I believe that my personal belief right now is that Revelation 19 and Matthew 24 are the same event. I believe that um, the first coming of Jesus, and um, yeah, so essentially I believe that there was a first coming of Jesus. Jesus was born of a virgin birth with Mary, right? 
And then I believe that there's a second coming. And I believe that there's one second coming. I believe that Matthew 24 talks about a second coming. I believe that Revelation 19 talks about a second coming. And I don't believe that there's second, second comings. I also believe that when uh, Revelation 19 is an illustration of God gathering his people for this marriage supper, and that will be one event. Nevertheless, um, if you want to listen to a little bit more of that, February 18th of 2023, there's a sermon on the website called Rapture. That's where you can understand what I believe about that. Either way, let's look at Matthew 24 to give us a little bit extra detail of his second coming. So when he returns, the earth will be experiencing disturbances like it has never seen before. So Matthew 24, 29. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. So when Jesus returns, the earth is going to be experiencing things that it's never, ever, ever seen before. What does it tell us? The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky. This will reveal that Jesus will bring the age to an end. He has power over all created order, and nothing can stop him. He's all the way up. If you know, you know. You know the song? Nothing can stop us. I'm all the way up. No one. So now I'm just looking like a fool. All right, thank you. Good. Thank you. Now I don't have to get red in the face. He has power over everything. But the earth will be experiencing these birthing pains like it never has before. When he returns, the whole world will see Jesus in physical form. Matthew 24, 30. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the heaven and with power and great glory. Now, here's where I have issues with people suggesting that we get raptured in Matthew 24 and then Jesus comes together or he gathers us in Revelation chapter 19 too. So where the issue is, is all of God's people come together for this marriage supper and he gathers, he gathers people at that time too, but he returns at this point, right? So in Revelation chapter 19, Jesus returns and people see him and he's there. But also in Matthew 24, he returns and people see him and he's there. But then for people who believe that Matthew 24 is when the rapture happens, when the gathering unto him happens, then my question is this. Then why isn't it all over at that point? It should all be over at that point. So then where the issue is, is people believe, well, Jesus somehow reveals himself in Matthew 24 because it just tells us right here in Matthew 24, then all peoples will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in heaven with great glory. So people in Matthew 24 see him and they mourn when they see him. But here in Revelation chapter 19, they also do that again. So in Matthew 24, we have a second coming. And then now in Revelation chapter 19, we have a second, second coming. Does that make sense? It just kind of confuses me. So that's why I say Matthew 24 is not a different event than Revelation chapter 19. There's one second coming. Amen? Okay. So when he comes, people will see him in one form. They will see his physical body. And when he returns, um, here's what happens. Scripture tells us uh, where it will be. Uh, yeah, scripture tells us where it will be. Zechariah 14, 3 and 4. 
Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on the day of the battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split into the east and to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. So, where will Jesus split the sky and appear? On this day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. So this shows us his power. He and God will decide when, where, and how he will return. When Jesus returns, he will gather his people with him. Matthew 24, 13. But the ones who stand firm to the end will be saved. Matthew 24, 31. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So again, if you have more questions about the revelation, or sorry, not the revelation, the rapture, February 18th on the website, its title is The Rapture. So after this, after Matthew 24, after this part of Revelation chapter 19, Jesus defeats his enemies. He gathers the church. He gathers the people. The masses are with him, right? Because he's returning with the masses. And as that's happening, he now defeats the enemy. Verse 17, and I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, and the mighty, of the horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Verse 19, then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who performed uh, the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. What a unique scene to be described. That all these vulture birds are just going to gorge themselves on people's flesh. And you say, why would God do that? Why would God allow these birds just to eat people's flesh? Well, God has been patient with every single one of us. These people through the book of Revelation, through the end of time, see his power. But what, what have we learned through this book? That even when they see his power, they would rather the rocks fall on them than repent. They would rather just die and go to hell than to repent and turn to him. This is a true enemy of God. He's inviting people into a relationship. He's sticking his hand out and asking people to walk with him, yet they continually deny him. So what does he do? By his word, he takes them out, and then their flesh is devoured. So this is why it's called the Great Supper. It's called the Great Supper because as God defeats his enemy, the birds will eat their flesh. Jesus will defeat everyone who opposes him. The beginning of all wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Amen? It's biblical. When Jesus comes back, he wins. And there won't actually be a battle because he's above all. It will be Jesus' word that defeats the enemy 
He won't swing a sword. He won't shoot a bow. He won't speak to the bears or the lions to go kill someone. He doesn't fight with anything other than his word. God's word is powerful. The word that we're holding today has that same power. But the word that's being talked about here is all of these things. I mean, because in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. It's always been here. It always was. And what's unique is this, is that word in John 1 is Jesus. But then he takes the word, and then the word became flesh. So Jesus then, that word that was here, then became flesh. And then after the word became flesh, he died for you and I. And then now that word, that word, that same power of Jesus we have, a lot of them in our homes, many of them in hotels. And we say, why is my life not changing? Because we're not reading the word. How about this? You can read the word and not read it. You can spend time with the word, but miss him. Because if we just do it out of obligation, we're going to miss him. Like for those who are married, you're like, hey, you rub my back tonight. And then you just get the obligatory back rub. They're huffing and puffing and squealing about it. You're just like, you know what? Not even worth it. When we approach the Bible in the... And it's always me huffing and puffing, right? Macy's never, ever done that. So when, when we approach the Bible with that same mentality, I have to be here. I have to do this. I'm a slave to God. We're never going to get anything out of it. But when we say, I want to be here, I want to learn about you, I love you, I care about you, the word will bring transforming power to our lives. But here in Revelation 19, Jesus defeats the enemy by his word. Just as God created with his word, he will destroy with his word. You guys remember, in the beginning, what did God do? Spoke, and it happened. And then, what did he do? He spoke again and it was created. And then he spoke again, and it was created. So not only does God have creative power in his voice, he also has destroying power with his word. Second Thessalonians 2.8, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. When this battle happens, there's no bombs, there's no bullets, there's no archery, there's no you and I doing anything. God will speak it, and it will be done. He will speak it, and all the enemies will die. There's literally no battle. It's just whatever he says, it's finished dead, done. And that's why we see the bald eagle population increasing in this area. <laughs> we got to have something eating the people. But how about this? Statistically speaking, a loved one of yours is going to hell. Statistically speaking, family members or friends will be in hell. Our family members or our friends one day might be a part of this event. But on the wrong, well, sorry, they will be a part of this event, but they might be on the wrong side. But you and I are so afraid of the pain that our foot has. You guys with me when I say that? what Bob shared this morning, a broken foot, and we're afraid to walk because it hurts. You and I are so afraid of our foot pain. We're so afraid of people mocking us or hating us that we're afraid to bring up the gospel at our workplaces, within our homes, with our loved ones. We're afraid 
to be canceled. We're afraid to be doxxed or exposed. When Jesus comes, he will speak and it will be finished. So what does that mean? The word of God has power. The breath of God has power. Amen? We're wrapping up. So Jesus defeats his enemies. So the question has to be this. What does this mean for you and I? What does Revelation chapter 19 mean for you and I? It means we need to put our faith in Jesus before we die or before he returns. It means that if we know people who don't know him, we need to love them and we need to help them understand who he, who he is. Acts chapter 16, 30 through 30, 31. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Then he replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Believing in Jesus here isn't as simple as it seems, but it certainly isn't as complex as we make it. Paul wasn't saying that we must just, um, well, yeah, yeah. What wasn't being said here was just that we must believe in Jesus, what it means is there must be a surrender within our own hearts. There must be a submission to him. You guys know who also believes in Jesus? The demons. Scripture tells us that demons believe in Jesus, but you know, sometimes they even do more than the church because what does the scripture continue to tell us? That they believe and they what? They tremble. There's a fear that they have. So intellectually, demons and many people believe that Jesus is Lord. But just believing that Jesus is Lord doesn't save you. Believing in Jesus saves you. And the in means that you follow him, that you do what he says, that you obey him, that you trust him, that you have a relationship with him. And, he is, and as many have said before, if you and I are on an airplane, this is an airplane right now, it's flying, we're 35,000 feet above ground right now, and you're like, how is a church flying? I don't know. It's happening. But what we recognize is the church shouldn't be flying, and it's going to crash. So what do we need to do? We need to get the parachutes. If I simply say, I believe in the parachute and I look at it and I just say, I believe, I believe that the parachute could save me. I believe that it's a saving device. Does it save me? No. It means that I believed in the parachute and the church still crashed and we all died. The way that we're saved is to then say, I believe in the parachute. I put the parachute on and then by faith, we jump out the window and put our faith that the parachute will save us. Believing in Jesus doesn't mean that your faith is in him enough to share the gospel, to obey him, to repent of your sins, to turn from all wickedness. So what we need to have the faith that what we end up doing is we put on the parachute and we trust him. Amen? Does that make sense? We can't just believe that it works. We have to put enough faith in Jesus that we follow him and we do the stuff. What's unique is this, is we, we have to put our faith in Jesus before we die or before he returns. And you guys are familiar with the parable of the virgins, the 10 virgins, and then the lamp, the oil and their lamps, right? And they walk out. And five of them are good with oil. The others are not good with oil. They needed to return. And then because they had to go back to get their oil, they missed the banquet. You know what that's telling us is, number one, we need to be ready. But it also means this. Someone else's oil is not good for us. 
Macy's oil is not good for me when I go meet Jesus. Your grandma's oil is not good for you when you go meet Jesus. My oil is not good for anyone else. I have to have my own oil, and you have to have your own oil, and you have to have your own oil right now. And what the parable warns us of is have that oil. And what the oil is referencing is a relationship with Jesus today. Because we might not make it to Revelation 19. (laughs) What I'm about to say, people are like, oh, you shouldn't say that. And that's where we also learn in the book of Galatians about um, do not touch, do not taste, do not look, right? You guys remember that? Essentially, the Galatians believed in karma. And what I'm about to say, we're all like, oh, you shouldn't say that because you believe, I don't believe in karma. Nevertheless, we don't know if we're going to make it home today or if we're going to get in a car accident. One of us in here might die today. Well, pastor, you can't speak that way. Why? Shouldn't we warn the church? Shouldn't we warn the people we love? Shouldn't there be an urgency? We need to be ready. We need to be ready. You're like, are you talking to me? Are you telling me I'm not saved? I'm not telling you. I'm telling you that you should have the urgency to go tell your neighbor. You should have your urgency to go tell your friend. These people that God has placed in your life, because you know what? They can't live off their grandmother's oil. They can't live off your oil. And what breaks my heart is much or most of the American church who say that they're Christians are living off of someone else's oil. How many coworkers do you have that are like, well, I'm a Christian? What does even being a Christian mean to you? Because we encountered a lady in our neighborhood the other day who said she was a Christian and then said Jesus wasn't perfect. So to her, being a Christian means something a whole lot different than what the Bible tells us. So for us, what Revelation 19 should be helping us understand is we have to be ready with our oil. Finally, Revelation 19 means that we are to live anticipating his return, but we don't focus on figuring it out. We are to be his witnesses as we do this. Acts 1, 7 and 8. He said to them, It is not for you to know the time or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's not our job to figure out the day or the hour. Rather, Scripture is clear. We are to simply be ready for it. You and I are to be ready for his return today. But while we wait, we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on us. Therefore, we need to be witnesses locally and to the nations. Since the end is near, we are to be people of prayer. After this, there's one more point. Since the end is near, we are to be people of prayer. 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober and of sober mind, so that you may pray. What's happening is we're so distracted and we're so busy, right, because we're in the um, storage wars. That's what I should have called it, right? Storage wars. We're in the storage unit. Anyone? We're in the storage unit. And we're so distracted. How many of you guys think that we're in the end of times? I think we're in the end of times because actually what uh, was being preached in the New Testament was repent for um, the kingdom of God is near. So I think we're in the end of times because that's what scripture says. Um, The end is near. So I believe that. So the end of all things is near according to 1 Peter. So therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. So what are we supposed to do during the end of time? Pray. Have our oil ready. Be witnesses. And then finally, we are to patiently endure um, mistreatment. James 5, 7, and 8. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. 
See how far the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. So when we face hard times, when we are mistreated, and life doesn't go our way, what are we supposed to do? Stand firm and patiently endure. Things are not going to always go our way, but justice is in God's hands. And his return is near. So let's keep his return in mind. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for your word that brings life. Your word also brings death. You have the power to do whatever you want, however you want, whenever you want. I pray that we would align our hearts with you this week. May we step out of the storage unit today. Father, I pray just for your power to be manifest in our lives, our lives this week. I've tried so many times on my own and it hasn't worked. It doesn't work. So I ask that there would just be a special grace of your love and your mercy to lead us this week for us to sense your presence that hard things became easier and easier things even became easier because you're with us. And Father, maybe the situations don't change but our mind will because you're with us because you have our hand because you're near to the brokenhearted. In Jesus' name, amen.